the beginning of our show, there's always some random part of the conversation that we kick off with. And Judd will, to his credit, will never let us not record it. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I think it makes the show. Welcome to GTM Unfiltered, hosted by GTM veterans, Judd Borco, Craig Rosenberg, and Matt Amundsen. We make talking business fun and sometimes funny. That's because we're always unscripted, unfiltered, and unlike anything else out there. Get ready. So, so let, let's start with Matt Shirt. Come on. Yeah, I mean, Matt, you know, your profile picture in Zoom, We, I just wanted to know, is your shirt buttoned up to the neck? No. 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 Are you I, sure? I, I was wondering if you were hanging out with the homies. Just, just wondering. Listen, I'm not above that look, and I grew up in Southern California, so it works for me from time to time. But uh, no, I, I yeah, let me let me stop video here. There's there's a break there. That button's unbuttoned. Okay. Right. Maybe it's because it's such a little tiny picture. It's a teeny picture. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, Rosetta, what do you think? Was that buttoned up? Is he lying to us? Whatever it is, I think it's a great style. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Yeah. Plus, Matt, he's in PR, always... man. He could, you know. I used to be in PR, Craig. That's right. You used to. So, so you're telling us you can spin anything. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. My favorite story about Matt is I don't know. We were like at like a, he'd chosen some incredible Italian restaurant. We're there, and he's got a guy there. He's like, "This is Craig Rosenberg. He was our first client at you know N6." I'm like, "What?" So like this kid was just. I mean, like his PR agency, man, he, you built that thing off your back, man. This it was like the most impressive thing. And we thought this guy was the greatest and we were right. And like, I remember like I introduced you to someone and like, she's like, God, I got the reference. And the reference said, these guys will walk on fire for you. <laughs> like that was true. And it was like, you'd done, you were so pro man that I didn't even know that you had just started building the thing. And um, that was the beginning of our relationship. We've, we've, I've worked with Matt in his previous role as a, a fire walking PR person. Now he gets people to walk on fire for him. <laughs> yeah. Multiple times. So you built N6 agency from the ground up, made it to the point where it was a big, top PR agency did that for what 10 years yeah uh rolled into a holding company I, I don't know if the order is correctly co correct yet but I remember meeting with Matt he's like Craig I'm the CEO of a holding company now so you he's, he did so well he's buying he's acquiring putting a, you know a variety of different companies under his holding company but the best part is and Matt and Matt cannot wait to talk to you about this is this guy buys a soccer team in Italy, okay, and turns that thing around, which I know everyone wants to talk about. Now, here's the thing: I always thought you owned one. Did you do two? I was looking in the bio. You have? Do you have two Italian uh, soccer teams? Yeah, we have four, four teams total under the portfolio now. Oh, you have you have a U.S. one too, right? MLS. Yeah, we we spent like two years trying to get soccer, professional soccer, to Brooklyn, which yeah. was just a crazy. Craig was a part of that too. You, I was kind of. Telling, feeding you some of the drama behind oh, the scenes. Yeah. That was a wild, wild process. But yeah, finally, about three months ago, we closed uh, that deal. And our, our expansion year is 2025. Wow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we're pumped. So, so yeah. So, you know, it's funny when we were putting this together, Matt, I told everyone about you. They're like, because uh, we we want to diversify how who we talk to and the stories that we hear. So like, 
Uh, I know the guys have been excited to talk to you and we had to figure out, Judd called me like 40 minutes ago. He's like, well, what, what part of these amazing parts of his background should we talk about? Right? <laughs> we started N6A, God, 14 years ago now. Started, you know, started out in my basement, um, spent 10 years as the founder and CEO, scaled a nice business, um, got us through COVID. And then I was just kind of, not, not that I was bored, but I was ready. I was just ready for another challenge. Um, we had built a really good network. The business obviously was generating, you know, positive cash for a while, and we could afford to take a little bit of a risk. And I started, you know, making these crazy investments and leveraging the agency, which was a built-in promotional vehicle. And we started investing in these other businesses, and there were businesses that really just kind of um, satisfied my curious, crazy mind. So we did soccer, we did wine, we did media. And um, now it's four years into the holding company. We, we have eight, eight businesses under uh, the the portfolio, all our media, marketing, and entertainment, and sports. You had me at wine and soccer. Yeah. As soon as I saw that, I was like, I already, I'm going to just go hang out with this guy. I don't care about the this podcast, so whatever. Matt, do you want to do the Mark Consuelos uh, soccer team first? Sure. So when we took over the Consuelos, the team with Consuelos and Kelly Ripa, we actually bought the team basically out of administration and we had eight days before the season started and we had um, no players, no coach, no GM. There was mushrooms growing out of the field, our stadium. <laughs> it was crazy. And we wound up winning the championship in our first year, but that was like a, that was a crazy, crazy time. Um, or we what? could do Bro Brooklyn was wild too, because Brooklyn, like I was out of that deal like a dozen times, you know, because you're dealing with, New York City bureaucracy and politics and lobbyist firms. And like, I'm just like, I, I just had no patience for a lot of the nonsense that we dealt with. But I was so determined just to get that thing closed because we had a big vision to bring, you know, pro soccer to Brooklyn. Uh, but that there was a ton of adversity with that one. So we could do either, either one of those two. Matt Amundsen, what do you well, think? Yeah. So, so Craig, <laughs> oh yeah, Matt, Matt bought a soccer team with Kelly Ripa's husband. And I keep going. Come on, man. That's Mark Consuelos, dude. Like, <laughs> I understand that he's married to a very famous person who has a very famous morning show, but like that, he's a guy all to himself and one that I think most of us would uh, gladly wake up tomorrow morning and be that guy. So let's let's properly name this dude. Uh, I think, <laughs> given the fact that. Uh, you know, between the 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 popularity of of shows like you know Ted Lasso and uh, and the Wrexham show, like this story is incredible. And uh, the fact that you acquired the business when you acquired it in the state that you acquired it, and then had the results uh, that that you had is something that's it's pretty magical. Uh, so I mean, I'd love for us to dive deeper into that because I think. Um, the broad-based business application of, of something like that is, you know, there's there's been plenty of times where where where, where folks like the three of us have moved into a business to uh, either up-level it or 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 solve problems and 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 take something that may be on the downslope or maybe something that feels nearly insolvent and turn it into something that's that's very successful. So I think that for for a core part of our audience, they'd be very curious into what your methodology was, both from like a tactical perspective. But I'm guessing just, you know, because I have a sports background as well, also from a, from, from a sort of a mental and coaching perspective. Sure. Well, so I, I got one, one starting well, question. So from a business perspective, what yeah, was the most challenging part going from like 
I mean, you probably watched soccer, played soccer, but like getting into that business, like what was the, the biggest shock, like uh, from a business perspective that you had? Well, <laughs> frankly, you know, when you deal with European clubs in Italy, a lot is the, is the bureaucracy. There's, there's borderline corruption, you know, in some cases that you deal with that are, are really just generally accepted in Europe, but to us as American entrepreneurs and owners, like they're totally foreign concepts. So it took us a minute to really adjust to that. I think, you know, we, we made a lot of mistakes, but I think one of the smart things we did was the first deal we did with European soccer, we came in as a minority investor. So there was already an operating team. We were backing, like we would have been all, you hear, you, like we heard all these horror stories about these American investors who at the time invested in European clubs and just had like horrible, horrible experiences. Yeah. And most of them, the, the one common theme was that most of them just bit off more than they could chew. Like sure. they had, you know, like Mike Piazza, who's actually become a good friend of mine. Mike Piazza went into Italy and was totally taken advantage of. Like, and he, you know, he just, he didn't have the, um, he's the greatest guy in the world, but he didn't have the experience or the network to run a European soccer club. So that I was like, shit, like, let me, let me just chill out here and kind of take a minute to learn, to build a network, to understand, you know, how the inner workings of these clubs work. And I did a year or two um, of just really learning. And then, so then fast forward to last year, then when we bought the club, we bought hundred percent of the club with Mark and Kelly and with some of our other co-owners and we operated it. So I, I felt like we were kind of already through the, you know, we were battle tested at that point. Okay. So now that you're there though, we got it. So you bought the club no players, no coaches, mushrooms growing on the field. You had eight days till the season started. And then you want like talk to, I mean, tell us that. I mean, that's better than Ted Lasso. That's nuts. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll give you the whole, the whole context. You need the backstory too, Craig. So what happened was it's 2020. I'm like, I built this PR firm and um, we had a great management team. The business was sort of running itself. And I felt like at that stage in my career, I could start to um, take a little bit more risk. And I, and I wanted to just, I didn't want to mess around with businesses I wasn't passionate about. I, yeah. felt like if, I felt like if I was passionate about a business, the business it was more likely to succeed. And frankly, even if it failed, I was like, at least I'll have a hell of a you know fun time doing it. Yeah. Um, so, so we get into Italian football. That's what brings us to Italian soccer. It was one of my lifelong dreams, you know, to invest in an Italian football club. Um, you know, grew up watching Italian football with my grandfather sitting on his lap, espresso in the in the kitchen. Like this was my childhood. Yeah. So um, we invest in this club called Campobasso. This is in 2020, right in the height of COVID. Um, all the stadiums were shut down. So there was no revenue from tickets. Like, And uh, I, I felt like there was just so much negativity and so much pain and suffering. Like I wanted to do something that galvanized people. And for me, it was cool. So we buy this team, Campo Basso, and the team had just had like the worst luck. It was like this, it was like this hidden jewel where if it just had proper management and ownership, I felt like it was just ready to take off. Um, it was nestled right between Rome and Naples, 25,000 seat stadium, a couple million people from that region who lived in North America, which played right into our you know hands in terms of our skill set and expertise. So we wind up investing in this club. And the first year we invest in the club, we're a minority owner and the club gets promoted. Okay. And it's the first time in 32 years, the club got promoted. Yeah. And it was like the coolest experience of my life. Like this was all happening during COVID. It was like, we literally brought so much 
hope and pride and joy to this region because of the promotion. The, the soccer team really is the, you know, is the, the, the identity of the region. So that's 2020, and we're minority owners at the time. 2021, then the, the next year, first year, the team is playing in the next tier up, which is the third tier of Italian football. Um, the, we started to have some issues with the with the majority owner, who was basically corrupt. The majority owner was basically corrupt. That's kind of the the, the the easiest way for me to explain it. And um, w- they wound up reneging on an option we had to take the majority out. It was, it was a whole, basically that whole year, the following year was complete drama and nonsense. And like, it was actually painful because, um, you know, we, we really invested because we were passionate about it and, uh, we believed in the project. And then the following year, it just turned into just this ugly kind of mess with us fighting with the majority owner. And then what happens a year, a year later, after the following season, everything that I sort of perceived to be the case came true. And because of some administrative non-compliance issues, the club winds up getting uh, relegated or put into administration essentially. And the Italian, and it was because of mistakes that the majority owner made. And the Italian Federation said, basically you're no longer eligible to play professional soccer. So oh. you have to restart from the fifth tier, which is like purgatory. It's like a death sentence. Oh. And um, we had established a really good rapport with the Federation and they were sort of encouraging us to take over the club. But they were like, look, you know, if you take over the club, you got to restart all the way from the bottom. It's basically an amateur league. So think about like the highs and the lows. You go from getting promoted for the first time in 32 years to a top professional league, you know, millions of dollars of revenue um, to overnight basically being an amateur club. And nobody really had the cojones, you know, to go buy the club. And I was like, you know what, like, screw it, let's go do this. And we own a hundred percent of it. It's a good story. You know, it's all ours. We don't have to worry about sharing it with any, you know, knucklehead co-owners. And um, the challenge was that we had eight days to do it. You know, we bought the club on September 11th. Our first game was September 20th. There was no, um, no coach, no players. There was no CEO to run the club. Um, We had, Mushrooms growing out of the field because it was totally left abandoned by the old ownership group. And then on top of it, because you're dealing with Europe where it's pro rel, you know, promotion and relegation. Yeah. You got to try to win the league. So it's not like we're just trying to put a team like to, you know, to show up every Sunday and just, you know, be a mid table team. We needed to win the league. So we needed to put an elite team together basically on eight days notice. And Obviously, it worked out well, but like, you know, looking back at it, that was a pretty, you know, crazy, crazy move. And a lot of things could have went wrong. But thankfully, just everything, the soccer gods were and I think the business gods were on our side, too, all year. Yeah. I mean, based on a story like that, everything should have gone wrong. It's amazing to to, to be in that state. I mean, sometimes uh, I think about like how stressed out I am leading up to a trade show. And you're talking about, you know, a multi-million dollar investment multi-million dollar business opportunity and you got to get a product on the field in in an eight-day period that's unbelievable can you talk us through a little bit of like how do you where do you start in that situation do you go look for a ceo first a coach first the players like how does that all come together in such a short period of time and and one caveat to that like how do you feel like your business business experience helped you figure that out yeah 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 well you know judd on that question Look, um, I, I love Italy. You know, Craig knows this. Craig and I used to hang out all the time in Soho, Italian restaurants, wine, the whole thing. <laughs> no one loves no one loves like the motherland more than I do. But um, 
if you come in with, you know, in a humble way, you know, not in a, not, a, you don't want to, you don't want any kind of hubris to, to take over. But if you come in with a real discipline, uh, westernized entrepreneurial mindset, those clubs in many cases are so mismanaged that that can be an opportunity. You know, if you really, so I, I just tried to bring the very, you know, modest amount of business and management and innovation experience I had, you know, running a company in the United States to an Italian team that had basically just been screwed time and time again by people that just didn't have the best interests of the club. They didn't know how to build internal culture. They were probably, you know, they were overly selfish with distributions and making, you know, wrong decisions on reinvesting in the club. And I just tried to apply, you know, what worked for me in my primary line of business, which for the prior 10 years had or 12 years had been, you know, marketing and PR. And um, thankfully it worked out. Um, and I tried to do it in a way where I also wanted to learn, you know, I don't want to just come in and be this, you know, a lot of times I see these American owners as these ATM machines, you know, you just come in and you're just good for money. I don't want, you know, I really wanted to be more than, uh, you know, a financial backer of the club. I wanted to be a positive steward for the community. We wanted to contribute and be accretive to the community in ways that others weren't. There was about a million. This is actually the poorest region in Italy we invested in. So that was really meaningful to me. It's where my grandparents came from. So it really hit home. And there's about 300,000 people that live in this region. It's called Molise in Italy. There's 1.2 million people from Molise who live in North America. So like that was where our market was. Like our bread was let's attack North America. Like these are people that have, have been successful in business, but everyone um, shares a common pride uh, to the, you know to their homeland and to their to their birthplace, and we really tried to bring those people into the project as sponsors, investors, and and that that helped tremendously. You know, we wanted to build a global project and really um, help these people in Italy dream beyond their surroundings, which historically was very provincial. Um, and Matt, I missed your question. What was your question? Well. Great answer, by the way. My question was uh, much more on the tactical side in terms of no team, no owner, no CEO. How do you start slotting those people into the organization? What was your strategy for for building back what was basically an empty cabinet? Well, that's where I was saying before that that's where I think our experience as a minority owner helped us. Like, sure. Craig, like you'll appreciate this. We were a minority owner for two or three years, and I woke up every day and like my family, they're like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you know, you're pouring money into like, and when is, when are you going to get liquidity out of this? And this was by the way, during COVID when the markets were just like defying all freaking logic. And I'm going into some soccer team where basically, you know, you're constantly investing, you know, you're investing and, and we didn't have operating control. So that was maddening to me, but you know, Matt, to answer your question, that all paid off when we took over the club last year, mm -hmm. because then it was like, I realized that all those investments were really just learning lessons and yeah. we had built a network. We had a good intuition. We knew, you know, how the PL worked. We knew how player trading worked and um, we were able to assemble a team. Obviously you're still taking a ton of risk. You don't know what the hell your best player could go down the first week and the season is over for you. So yeah. you're still inheriting a ton of risk, but a lot of that risk, I think, I don't want to say it was mitigated, but, we were comfortable with the risk because we we had the network, we had the relationships, we knew how these businesses worked at that point. So we were like, you know what? If this thing, we knew what the worst case is, and that that really the, the one thing I've learned as we've moved to this more diversified 
uh, model of ours is you just want to go right to what is the worst case? Yeah. What does the worst case look like? What is the downside risk? And then if you live with if you can live with that, you know, that's when you know, that's when you can make smart decisions. And then you focus on, you know, let's build to get to the upside. Yeah. yeah. By the way, first hire. Matt, I was thinking, I was I was thinking about you when he was talking about the uh how you guys made that it seems like a killer targeting decision to build a community around the folks in North America from the region. Like that's yeah. that's like a that's like a that's got you know, that's the kind of thinking that had to come from your years of being in marketing and PR. I mean, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look at it, Craig. So, so two things on that. Number one, all these American um, investors and private equity firms that are pouring money into European soccer, especially in Italy, they're all going to the north. Milan, Florence, Venice, all the sexy cities, you know, right. um, and where all the money is. And I wanted to do the opposite. And people thought I was crazy. And, you know, I, I probably am crazy. But th the way I looked at it was there's very, um, very limited market share domestically because you're you know in southern italy you're dealing with a lot of poverty you're dealing with um underdeveloped infrastructure so people are like why are you investing in this club and then i just pointed to the expat base and, th and i said that's why i'm investing in it because this you know this region has 1.2 million expats that are in north america these are the ones that are have the money and have built the companies um you know and want to give back and as crazy as it sounds you don't meet a lot of expats from Florence and from Venice that live in New York. You know, you you meet the expats that are from Sicily and Calabria and and, and Naples and you know the, and that that's what our strategy was concentrated on. So to me, it was and, and that played right into our hands. Obviously, being a a marketing firm, the relationships we had in North America with sponsors, with media, you know, just played perfectly into our hands. But what did you do? Like so, like I'm very curious on this. Right, this is. Uh, this is brilliant. I think there's a broader lesson for any business in terms of targeting and thinking about, you know, uh, you know, who to build a community around. But like, what'd you, what'd you do with the 1.2? Did you reach out to them and start to market to them? Did you, sounds like you got some to be sponsors, some to be investors. What, what were the plays you ran there? Well, once Kelly and Mark decided to join the project, we started getting a lot of inbounds. So that that was yeah. helpful. <laughs> before before that, it was it was um, the first thing we did is we established partnerships with all the community organizations. So there's there's about out of the 1.2 million expats, 400,000 of them. First off, the Italian American population is massive. It's 17 million people. It's a highly affluent community. A lot of them are second and third and fourth generation now. So they've been educated here. They've made money here, but they all share a common um, bond and pride, you know, of their, their, their homeland. Um, so we were really looking to address the broader Italian American community and, and the club, these clubs are incredible platforms for storytelling. You know, look at what Ryan and Rob did in Wrexham. It's like just an incredible, these are platform, these are, these are the best media platforms you could possibly have because there's history behind the clubs. There's tourism, there's culture, there's politics, there's drama, there's sports. There's so many of these things rolled up into these European clubs. So we really wanted our club to represent the Italian American story, you know, which is a story of uh, underdogs and immigrants and yeah. you know, people. And, and that's something that I felt all of the 17 million Italian Americans could identify with. And then at the bare minimum, 
we knew the 1.2 million who happened to come from this specific place could yeah. certainly identify with it. So we were much more targeted with them in terms of newsletters, establishing relationships with community event um, organizations. We did watch parties from you know Montreal, Toronto, Philly, Boston, some of the more densely populated um, uh, uh, locations and and that sort of thing. And then when Mark and Kelly joined, it just took everything obviously to, to another level. That's incredible, man. Does that satisfy your business part of that? Like that is. Uh, oh, I, I'm going to take a, a little bit of a right term because I mean, I think we can probably talk soccer all day long and, and <laughs> I'm actually sure we can. Um, but I, I want to kind of take this back to like, you know, you come from PR and marketing um, US based. And one of the things that my experience has been is there's a very different mentality when you talk about PR and marketing between US and Europe. What was your experience? <laughs> right like the differences you ran into and do you think that it kind of your experience in the u.s having built marketing teams pr and really understanding how we do things and i i'm going to say i think we do it better i'm on record so it goes um that helped you to be successful with the team and other people like ryan and, and so on do you think that u.s experience actually have, has really helped in that area to kind of get everybody around get the team going build that that momentum Totally. I mean, the first the first thing which was strikingly um, surprising to me, Judd, was in the U.S. You can sort of sizzle first as a brand, and you could stake second. You know what I mean? Like you can really make your brand, you, your brand perception can be amazing, and then your product can kind of be like the second. Now, if your product isn't good, obviously that's not going to be a good recipe. But you can you can kind of sell your brand first. Uh, based on perception alone, in our experience in Europe, it's the opposite. Like there's a, there's a, um, I don't want to say dubious, but people are a little bit, especially coming in as foreigners, they're skeptical first. So they, def their default is let these guys show me through their product that this thing is worth my time and my money and my energy. And then when it is, then they buy into the marketing hype. So for me, that was a big, that was a big thing to adjust to because we were like, let's go into Italy and let's crank marketing. Like, let's get the marketing machine cranking. And these people who have never had a club that's like, you know, been relevant from a marketing perspective are going to, you know, love us. And it wasn't, that was actually not our experience domestically. It was our experience in North America. Like the people in North America were like, oh my God, my hometown team. Like I've never heard that they have a team and they're doing all these great things here. So they loved it, but the Italians were very skeptical. Um, we we had to win first. We had to show them that we were there to win and we were competent and we were good operators. And then once we won their trust, now like they now they're like they call us Hollywood and Broadway, and you know they they love the whole marketing machine behind it now. Uh, but it wasn't that way at first. The other thing I noticed that was interesting was in Italy they actually don't, and I think this is true throughout Europe. Um, there's they're so they believe the product sort of stands alone. Like if you look at Italian products, it's craftsmanship, it's artistry, it's Ferrari, Lamborghini, it's and they, they feel sometimes not that marketing is uh, below them, but they feel like the product is the marketing. Right. So that was a that was something that I had to adjust to because we were used to representing clients. You know, Craig's company was great because he had the best product, as he knows. Yeah. You know, but a lot of our clients, man, they came to us and their product were like, shit, like, how are we going to market this thing? The product is like, you know, it's, 
it's yeah. pre-revenue, it's alpha, it's beta. Like there's a million competitors. I don't, how are we going to market this thing? Um, in Italy, it's sort of the opposite where they feel like they, sp- they spend so much time perfecting the product almost to the extent of um, complete and utter, you know, insanity in some yeah. cases. And they feel like that's that, that the best marketing strategy is the product first. You know, one of your take though, do you believe, I I want to know if he believes that. And I want to know from you two also. I I think my opinion is I've kind of become very balanced now, Judd. I probably went into European soccer, maybe with a little bit too much of an American, you know, marketing business uh, mindset. And I think I probably come out of it. I don't want to be like them. Maybe I don't want to be like us. So I think I'm kind of, kind of netted out somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But one thing, one thing that is true is that the North American, the North American soccer gods came to you. That you, the European football clubs come to you for advice. Like, what else did you bring to the table that the greater soccer community didn't have? From a, it sounds like from a marketing, merchandising product. I mean, like, you tell me. But like, what what was it that wasn't there that you guys brought to the table? Well, Craig, by the way, it boggles, absolutely boggles my mind that, like, I mean, you're talking to someone who four years ago was just a soccer fan and I loved soccer. I loved my grandparents. I loved like Italy and I had not the slightest clue, you know, how the inner workings of a soccer club look like. And then four years later, you know, we have global deal flow. Like people are calling me, asking, like, I'm like, how did this, you know, it just, it's totally blows my mind. Um, it is know, it's, a it's, story. I mean. It's uh so I still have a tough time kind of convincing myself I know anything about running a soccer club, but I, I guess I guess we kind of do know a little bit. Um, but but you know your question, I I think look these clubs are here's the deal. I don't know how closely you follow soccer, but England did an incredible job. If you look at like go back to the '90s, like as a quick history lesson, you go back to the '90s, Italian football was the product. You had AC Milan, you had Maradona with Napoli, you had, I mean, Juventus was winning every year. I grew up and you couldn't even find a Premier League game on TV if you, you know, if you looked all weekend for one. And then all that changed in like the late 90s, early 2000s, that basically flipped where the Premier League became uh, the It League. And it was because they were way ahead of everyone when it came to embracing social media content. Uh, They understood how to leverage TV rights. And Italy, again, I think it was a little bit of their lack of marketing, um, you know, m- mindset. They were like, look, we have the best product in the world and we don't need to invest in marketing. And that ended really badly, really quickly. Like just in the, in the span of five years, Italian clubs went from the best in the world to having a significant backseat to the Premier League where you couldn't even get into the Premier League if, you know, you're under a billion dollars at a certain point. Right. Um, so I think that was one thing we learned was for me, I saw that as an opportunity. Because you go into England and unless you have like a Wrexham-like differentiator, which really are few and far between, you're entering a super saturated market, incredible, incredible competition, um, you know, price price restic- restrictions. I mean, you know, just the English market for all the upside it has, it's so um, it's so restrictive in many ways at this point because it's been it's basically become a fifth professional sports league in North America. Right. And so in Italy, I felt like it's an opportunity because these clubs are just not embracing marketing and they're not tapping into their 
addressable market in North America. And they have like, they have an, an enormous, enormous addressable market in North America, but none of them were just prioritizing it. So for me, it was, it was a very natural uh, complement, I think, to our core business and our skill set. And had I went to England, first of all, I wouldn't have the money to do it. But even if I did go to England, I, I just don't think we would have been as successful. Mm. Yeah. By the way, Amundsen, the other Matt, I guarantee was online trying to buy a football team just now. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. American football. Mobile, but, yeah. <laughs> I, I, so, hey, Matt, Craig, I'd love to hear your take on how you guys would approach a football team and and, and get Matt here to give us the because uh, <laughs> I feel like I, I feel like, you know, being business people, we feel like we can kind of go after almost any business. But it sounds like this might be a bit of an anomaly, <laughs> like the, the way they do things is very different than the way we think. Yeah. I mean, when I'm listening to Matt's story, what I'm hearing is he completely understands the market there and also understands a market that exists on this side of the Atlantic. Um, and it would have been very easy to just be like, hey, guys, I now own this team. So an American, uh, an Italian-American, just like yourselves, owns a club over there. Let's all rally around that. I think the 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 distinction that he made in the promotion or uh, the way he's spoken about it very briefly here, and I'm sure there's way more to it than what he's just told us today, but uh, is actually having a narrative. And I think this is, this goes to show just like a brand requires a narrative, not just that it exists, not just that it has a product. And I think that's probably to to his point truer here in the in the states than it is uh, in, in Europe and even in places like uh, uh, like APAC. Um, to to tell the story of why you should care, not just that it's it's there and it's good and it's your heritage and all that, but like, hey, this is the this is a story of a club that's working class and is rising up the ranks just the way that you have as as Italian Americans or Italian Canadians. Uh, that to me is like this feels like the spark that probably lit the fuse there, not just that hey, this American entrepreneur has made good and gone back to you know the. The, the the home country and 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 uh you know is making his grandparents and great grandparents proud of uh, of their legacy but that that this is a legacy for everybody in this community yeah yeah that i i would actually say that um i would talk about the things i would never have thought of like the the target market that what you were just what we've been talking about this whole time the, the north american play was inc brilliant and incredible. I, I I just you know if you take like a B two B perspective, we want to lock horns in the and frankly, what I'm sort of thinking about right now is the obvious target market or ideal customer profile. Like you know, it would have been like you said, like most people say, well, you go in, and you're going to get after your the local fans, right? And instead, you found this. Yeah, you know, you had this great idea for a to, for frankly target market expansion, and then. So uh, the newsletters make sense. You know, you guys went gorilla, right? You went to the community groups, the watch parties, those things, yeah. those brilliant sort of, I don't even know if that's gorilla, but it is, you know what I mean? Like a newsletter has scale in it. Like what you guys did was like, you got, you know, you got your hands dirty and sort of building the marketing around this. I think that's, I, I, I'm not sure I would have thought of that. The other, the, and, and then what I love is like, you, you made this play, you built this sort of, this community, right? So everyone's talking about community. You built the community. Well, I think we can all learn from a lot of the elements that you did there. And in a weird way, you brought the community back to the home, 
base, right? Like, and then you, you know, that you were that gave you a sort of leverageable asset. Yeah. That went along with the soccer team. I think it's I, I think it's brilliant. I actually the so the the one thing I, I think about is I mean, do we feel I mean, do we feel like merchandising like the british the the uk clubs or premier league clubs are clearly really good i can't go anywhere without seeing uh yeah it's true chelsea jersey that yeah chelsea's my team and then um but man you you know all these things but like um what has merchandising been part of the play and with the north american community and well it is it is now a year ago we just like September 11th by the teams, September 20th got a play. It was like, we're drinking from a fire hose the whole season. I mean, but I wasn't, I wasn't exaggerating. We really had mushrooms growing on our field. It was abandoned. It was a 25,000 seats. Like imagine going to, um, you know, the Los Angeles Coliseum yeah. and it had and being abandoned for like six months and yeah. the grass was like a foot high. There's mushrooms growing. It was wild. Um, so the, on the merchandising side, we basically just had to take whatever we could get. So we went with some local merchandising provider. Now we got an Adidas deal, which is a global deal, global distribution. Adidas called us six months later when they heard about the project and they were like, we want to back this. So now for the first time ever, we have a global mer- and, and the people in Campobasso, which is the name of team in Italy, like they think they're like still living in a dream, you know, it's a dream world. Like Adidas is here. We have a, we sold a, a um, there's 14 clubs in Italy that have a, a stadium sponsor and we're one of the 14. We sold a stadium sponsor. It happened to be to uh, one of the largest um, real estate companies based in Canada. The The CEO of the company had to be, happened to be one of the 1.2 million, Craig. Amazing. And, I, mean, you went to, I mean, this like, oh my word. Such a great business hard, story. Like, you, uh, the, the, the hardest thing for me, um, when it comes to deal flow, you just talk about relating it to like our other kind of business interests as a, as a, um, as a group, it's so much easier to diligence other deals. Soccer deals are very hard to do diligence because once you, the real diligence happens below the hood, beneath the hood, like it's not the financials, the financials, this is the PL, this is what the company, this is what the club is churning in, in, in profit. This is what the club's losing. This is the debt position. You know, um, those things are pretty basic, but what really makes or breaks the deal is like the stuff that you have to go live in the country to see. So the political leanings of the fans, you know, what the local, um, you know, the local mayor is, you know, is he left leaning? Is he right leaning? You know, what are their interests in the club? Like there's all of these things that, you know, become incredibly uh, challenging to navigate through unless you're there and you get burned very easily. So you have to sort of live, you have to live it for a few years. I think, I think it's pronounced in Italy and England It's probably a little bit less pronounced, but Places like Italy, France, you know, France is very, I'm, you know, generalizing, but France is a country when it comes to soccer that's historically um, resistant to foreign ownership. So, you know, if you're going to do a deal in France, you got to go there and win the trust of the fans and do the community events and kind of prove to them why you're the right group. Because if you don't, and I actually have some stories I could share with you of other groups, the fans have the power to shut your project down before it even gets off the ground. So those are all things that don't really manifest themselves into the very late stages of the diligence process. And a lot of groups don't even do it. That's amazing. And Edmondson, you can go online and, and buy a soccer team. I just found it. <laughs> oh, good. It. Yeah. yeah. Just drop it in the chat. Thank just you. For later. I, I was thinking like a semi-pro football team or something like that. Cause the, 
I remember Matt, by the way, Matt, when we were talking, he's like, Craig, here's the thing about soccer teams. The amount, the price point for what you buy them for is what people will pay. Yeah, it's supply and demand. <laughs> it's like amazing. So no, I mean, look, I, I I learned actually I got a good piece of advice four years ago. We got in sports as sports as a business is a massive asset class. And sure. it's one of the few asset classes where um, you know, you get frankly very rational, disciplined, successful business people to make very irrational decisions. And in some cases, um, in some cases, that doesn't end well. Um, in other cases, you got to back the right people, just like in any other business, you got to back the right people. You know, but it's a supply and demand play. There's only it's based on scarcity. There's only so many assets available. You know, it's like beachfront property. There's just you can't build any more beachfront property. You know, so if you're in the market to buy a a beachfront house, you just got to deal with what you know the market is. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so really quick on the oh, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I just wanted to ask a question because uh, in in the U.S., like you get these new owners, uh, whether in the NFL or whether in the NBA, and they typically get fleeced by the other owners, like right off the bat, right? They're, because they're looking to do something really splashy. You know, you think about the Phoenix Suns picking up KD. They probably yeah. mortgage the future of of that club uh, through 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 that trade. The Cavaliers uh, as as they turned over ownership. Uh, was was certainly guilty of this. So, you know, was that on your mind as you as you stepped into full blown ownership over the team? Like, hey, we got to make the right decisions. We got to make a splashy decision, but we got to make decisions that are good for us now and good for us, you know, for the next twenty years of our ownership. Totally, Matt. In fact, that's where promotion relegation will scare the hell out of you. Like, yeah. we we if we go out, we could have signed a lot of splashy, you know, KD like signings yeah. in Italy, but. Ultimately, you know, when promotion, we, we needed to get promoted. Yeah, we needed to go up, right? So we, our mindset was, don't worry about um, from a from a roster development perspective. Don't worry about the splashy, sexy names. Let's just worry about winning the freaking league and like yeah. building a good locker room dynamic and building culture. And um, you know that that was the number one priority. And we're sort of, I know we didn't really get into the Brooklyn project very much, but we're on the other end of that now in Brooklyn, where we're in a league that is trying to convince owners that are in a closed door franchise model, you know, where their, their assets are incredibly safe and protected to start giving that up and opening the mm. doors to pro rel. And I'm actually, so I'm actually a huge proponent of it. I even think it's worth the risk and we're, we're you know, we're well willing to put our money where our mouths are. Um, but when you don't have promotion relegation risk, it does, you know, you can do, you can operate a lot more freely when it comes to roster decisions and make splashy hires because there's no risk of going down. Hey, yeah. what, what's, what is the positive and negative pro rel? So some of us get it, some don't. Like how impactful is being relegated or promoted to the organization, even in a dollar kind of Look, Judd, I mean, if you're, if you're like a scrappy bootstrap, you know, guy like me, you love it because you're looking for you're looking for undervalued assets that have relatively low downside risk that if you know if you can bet on yourself you can make that thing a 10 20 30x right you could also and then you understand the downside risk the thing could be worth could be worthless as well yeah. but like you know the downside risk is re- is worth it and the upside is enormous so like for Campobasso, when we got in you know, we didn't pay very much for it. And, you know, our, our recent trade was about 10 X what we paid in 18 months. And, and I, and I think it's still undervalued. Um, 
And that, that's the beauty of ProRel, right? There's, being relegated, though, like destroy your organization. Like, does it, is it like you see it as like, hey, there's a cost associated with being relegated? And the positive, if we get the promotion, it, it this value is kind of like driven forward. Well, look, I think it's all factored into the downside risk. For us, God forbid we got relegated, it would suck. We would be you know, the, the asset. A lot of these, you, you got to remember the European pyramid, the, the, um, the leagues are just moments in time, you know, they're moments in time and that's it. But it's the platform that you're betting on. So the platform, you have to believe that the platform will grow despite the ebbs and flows of being in, you know, the premier league or the championship or league one or league two or whatever it is. But there's a lot of stupid deals too. And, you know, I can give you for every good deal, I can give you dozens and dozens of stupid deals. And the stupidest deals are usually the biggest deals because, Mm -hmm. They have very little upside. Um, they have very little upside, and they have enormous, enormous downside. Yeah. So you know, you could talk about Leeds United. You could talk about. I mean, a lot of the clubs in the Premier League right now. There's clubs in the Premier League that if they don't stay in the Premier League, um, the ownership groups, it will literally be impossible for them to get their money out of the clubs. Um, so, and obviously, we don't have the means to go buy a Premier League club. But even if we did, I. It's funny, a quick story. When we got into Campo Basso for the first time, there was an American group. I have actually become very close with them that bought a team called Parma. I never heard of Parma. They were one-storied team that won the UEFA Cup in the 90s. And uh, they were in Serie A. They were about 10 games into the Serie A season. And, like, it was a joke. Like, everyone in Italy was like, whoever buys this club must be, like, you know, crazy because it's like a slam dunk they're going to get relegated. We were in the fourth tier at the time. So they're in the first tier. We're in the fourth tier. They bought Parma for about 120 million euros. And there was like a 98% chance of getting relegated. We bought Campobasso at the time for, it was like, it was like two and a half, three million bucks in the fourth tier. I think when we first bought it, right? Wow. And, uh, and then a year later we go up to the, so we're in the third, they go down. So they're in the second. And it was like a great case study for me because I said, the only difference between us is one tier right? Because now they're in B, we're in C, and $116 million in the purchase price. I mean, that's really, that's really the difference. So that's, that's how the game works sometimes. Well, so, so your opinion, Lionel Messi, Inter-Miami, good deal, bad deal? Well, I think it's a great deal for American soccer. Like it's, I think it's going to, like my father, for example, he's like a baseball guy. He didn't, you know, he doesn't know what a corner kick is or what he just doesn't care about soccer. All of a sudden we sign, you know, Messi becomes a player and now he's buying the Apple subscription. He's reading soccer books. You know, he's become really fascinated with the game. So I think in terms of the overall growth of the game of soccer, the sport of soccer in the United States, I think it was a great move. I don't think economically it was, I think it's almost impossible to justify that deal economically. I mean, if you kind of get behind the math of the and the economics of the deal, I don't see how that's a good deal at all um, for the league. It's a great deal for Messi. And for us, you know, we're on the, it's great for us because we're on the periphery, you know, we're, we're on the periphery investing in American soccer, but not having skin in the game where, you know, there's capital calls and there's you know, the fans, obviously they want to see the product on the field, but behind the product, they don't see that, you know, the consequences of that are, you know, capital calls and and a lot of other um, challenges economically that I think are going to take a long time to dig out of. But look, it was it was the right move. I think American soccer recognized ahead of the World Cup they had to make a big splash. 
Um, we, we talk to our people, like our network in Europe all the time. They had zero respect for American soccer. You know, the, like the MLS, they could, they, the MLS was completely irrelevant to anybody in Europe because there was no promotion and relegation. There's no, you know, Champions League path. Like, so I think, I think by getting messy, it was a signal that this is a real serious league. I frankly would like to see them invest more in youth. You know, like there was, um, Matt, I don't know how big of a soccer guy you are, but there was um, the, there was a record transfer fee this year paid by a kid. I forget his name. I went from Borussia Dortmund to Real Madrid, I think. Okay. They paid, I think it was 25 million euro transfer fee. And that, that was a record for an under 19 player, you know, which was like, what is that? Like one tenth of basically what my inter Miami paid Messi. Yeah. I'd like to see the U S soccer teams invest in those kids, like invest yeah. in the future where th then I'll be really impressed. If you can go convince an 18 year old kid who's worth $50 million on the transfer market, because he's got his whole career ahead of him to come to the U S and play his prime in the U S then I'll start to be impressed. Like, Lionel Messi for me at 34, 35, 36 years old, you know, he's an amazing player. I've seen him, you know, dominate in the Champions League. I've seen him dominate in the World Cup. I have no interest, frankly, in watching him in the United States because I've already seen him. You know, there's nothing he could do in the U.S. that I haven't seen him already do in Europe. So right. I'd like to see us start to invest more in the in the highly valuable, um, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds that could play another 18 years here. Like the Nike Under Armour approach, right? Go after the yeah. youth. They're going to grow into what you want. It's yeah, a foreign yeah. concept. I mean, look, as business guys, you'll appreciate like soccer is fascinating too because you own the assets. You know, it's like real estate. The, the, yeah. the players are assets that you own. And, you know, you go scoop up an 18 year old kid and you put him on a minimum wage contract for four years, which teams can can do that. Um, that kid could be worth 20 million euros. And that's an asset that, that you own the asset. So yeah. um, I'd like to see the US kind of catch up on, on that side. I think Europe obviously is way ahead of us, but I, I think we're getting there. So yeah, you know what? I, this is incredible. I'm not sure what to do because like the we kept, you know, like just the stories are endless here. It's amazing. And what one thing that keeps coming out to me, it's what I've known about you, but I want the like the dudes on the call and the audience. Like what we could you basically, I think everyone's got the picture here. You're you go in and like you like to take something either from scratch or broken and build it up so that you are a true entrepreneur. Like if you had to, from your experiences now across all your businesses, if you had like two or three things you would tell other entrepreneurs, what would you tell them? Like the secrets to your success? Well, no, I think number one is you have to be, um, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, I think you have to constantly be willing to pivot and to adjust, you know, I, you know, Craig, in my case, you know, I've made so many, uh, mistakes, but we've gotten a couple things right. And the things we've gotten right have hit pretty big, you know, all, all things considered. So I'm really proud of that. And if I didn't take the risks, I don't think, um, I don't think, uh, you know, and also for me, it's about, it's about, you know, waking up every morning, being passionate about something. Yeah. I, I always feel like the, the more I can, um, you know, put my, look, I put my heart and soul, you know, back to when you were a client, I mean, I put my heart and soul into everything I do. So I just feel like, um, if I can put my heart and soul into something, it can be successful. And uh, if I can't, I just feel like I'm not going to be able to optimize the value um, of the business or the asset as much as I would. And I usually pass on. It. And that's the one thing I've learned. And even if we fail, you know, we've had we've had a couple of failures, too, in the portfolio. And the failures have taught me a lot. And they've all I'm, I'm happy I did them because 
if I didn't do them, I would have been living the rest of my life thinking, you know, what if, why didn't I do yeah. that? And I don't like to live that way. I, I got to say the the best thing about this conversation, and thank you, Matt. We really appreciate you being here. Oh man. My gosh. One of the, the best things is this is that story of like, people think that you have, you start in something and you're stuck and you're, you, I think you're proof positive of like, go for it. Just go for it. Like, What's the worst that's going to happen? And and you've had that success and you've taken what you've learned, learned more, parlayed it, moved it forward. And, and it's a cool story that I think any anyone out there who's listening, like you can do whatever you want if you decide one, you want to, and two, you got the passion to put everything you got into it. Thanks, Judd. I appreciate that. By the way, Judd's a go for it guy too. You know, I could tell like when he's talking, he's like, I get this guy. Dude, we're going to hang and drink wine <laughs> at a soccer game. I think also, Craig, you know, you think I think you need um, you need a formula too, or you need I think a set of operating principles. Like for us, we don't just go. We we see so much deal flow in soccer. And by the way, just as a side note, soccer is by far the best networking investment we have ever made. Like just the mm -hmm. amount of new people you. It's the global game. You know, you're meeting global investors, business people agents, sponsors, you know, you're meeting so many people from across the world. You're learning about politics, cultures, language, travel, and there's no other investment I could think of that has that. But um, where I was going with that was we really have a core set of values with these soccer clubs. And it doesn't make sense to us unless they check a certain, you know, set of boxes. So for us, we look for underdog clubs, low downside risk. We look for clubs that have high um, potential to be exported so that we can, you know, use our marketing skills to actually, you know, drive incremental value, whether it's through revenue or media, uh, merchandising, whatever it might be. We look for clubs that have somewhat of an appeal uh, from a travel standpoint, you know, so these are like, we have like a set of five or six of these boxes. And I mean, we probably see now, I don't know, 20 or 30 deals a month. And we just go right to those boxes. And, you know, if they're not checking those boxes, as attractive as the clubs can be. And there are so many deals where I'm like, shit, like we're really tempted to do this deal. If they don't check those boxes, we just, we got to stay true to what has gotten us to this point. And if they, if they don't check those boxes, we just don't do them. Boom. I love that. I, I think, I think that's, that's a good ending. Uh, yeah. It's a great ending. Yeah. Matt, again, thank you for being here, man. Thanks for hanging out with yes. us. We'll have to do it with a uh, uh, wine and soccer next time. Um, Guys, as always, thank you so much for tuning in. We got amazing guests, obviously. Great things to talk about. We will see you soon. And thanks for uh, for being a part of this. Bye. Good, Matt. Thanks. Craig, when are you coming to New York again? Oh, man. When I come out there, we're going crazy. <laughs> Watch party. That's, that's staying in here. <laughs> I appreciate you guys. All thanks, right, guys. guys. Appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in to GTM Unfiltered. To hear our innovative insights and strategies, visit gtmunfiltered.com. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time.